Good on you, Ben. <laughs> Quick survey is Ben stepping down. Who thinks the coast is better than Sydney? Hands up. Ben, just have a quick look around, brother. <laughs> Who wants to move back to Sydney? <laughs> yeah, it's got some things going for it. Um, how, about I, uh, how about I pray? Father, we, uh, we do ask, please, now that you might um, work amongst us beyond what we could hope for or imagine and that you might do something by your Holy Spirit tonight in our lives, in our hearts, that you might transform and change us, that you might help us see Give us eyes to see the truth about who you are. Uh, help us be impacted by that, please, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I do want to talk to you about how you think about God. Uh, and I'll tell you why in a moment. But how do you think about God? When you, when you think about God, when you pray perhaps to God, uh, when you wonder about what God is like, what do you see? What do you think of in your own mind? Um, most of us have some kind of image of something is it, uh, some of us kind of have this, um, you know, there's been lots of Marvel movies and so on, you see the kind of Greek gods in there. Do you imagine God somehow to be this really buff, big, golden man up in a throne somewhere, um, sort of massive? Do you think of him like that? You're sort of praying to this old, bearded, powerful man in the sky. Do you think of God like that? Do you think of him like a parent? I don't know whether you've had good parents or bad parents, but do you think of him like um, some kind of great parent in the sky? Do you think of him like a policeman, the one you've got to always watch as he jumps on you for things you've done wrong? How do you think about God? What's in, do you think of God as a power, like the kind of Star Wars-y thing, kind of a, uh, just a force in the universe and in amongst all the universe? Do you think of God like that? How do you think about God? Do you think of God as being nice, lovely, a beautiful thing? How do you think about What do you think about when you think about God? It's an important thing to wrestle with. There was a book uh, written in 1952, which is like you wonder whether they had printing presses and stuff like that back then, but 1952, most of you, most of your parents weren't even born then, I don't think. So 1952, I wasn't. It was a long time ago, 70 years ago. In 1952, a man called Phillips wrote a book with the title, Your God is Too Small. What he recognised back in the 50s in the church world of uh, Britain, the United Kingdom and so on, that your God, their God, the God of Christians was too small. He believed that they'd sort of inherited a view of God through Sunday school. This wouldn't happen here, but they'd inherit a view of God through Sunday school that was trite and trivial and nice and old man in the sky. And as they'd grown up, that God, that image of God had never actually changed. Uh, he was still this nice Sunday school picture of God. And he was suggesting in the book um, that as Christians then moved into the more adult world of complexity and difficulty, grief and pain, their picture of God was inadequate to deal with the realities of life around them. And so many of them just drifted into the background or drifted into cultural Christianity and so on. Your God is too small. 70 years ago, he thought that was the case. It was a book that became very popular around the world. Do you think it's a book that applies today? Do you think it's possible that Christians in churches, people in our community, have a view of God that is too small? I think it's the case. I think it's very easy for it to be the case. Well, a great writer has said many centuries ago, actually, that the human heart is an idol factory. It's a factory that produces idols. 
misconstrued, misunderstood pictures of God. Our heart keeps making uh, understandings and pictures and images of God that are just not true. They're figments of our own imagination. They're fabrications that we've formed. The human heart keeps doing this. And one of the things that happens for people uh, is that our view of God becomes shaped to be that which suits us, the way we want him to be. And it doesn't always reflect reality. And the fact that we can shape God in such a way that he's too small demonstrates itself in all kinds of ways. It impacts our lives. It impacts the way we witness about God, talk about God, uh, the way our lives are lived under this God, the way we think about death and heaven and hell and judgment, whether we actually believe in those things or are impacted by our view of God. It impacts the way we have a, whether you have a sense of fear before God. Are you afraid of God? How big is your view of God? And it also impacts the way we view the Bible. If you've got a particular view of God, there are some parts of the Bible that you just, we just will struggle with. We struggle to make sense of because our image of God is just so small. We don't have the categories. To... Let me show you a couple of passages. Here's why we're dealing with it. We've gone through John's Gospel the last couple of months. And uh, I wanted us to come back to it just for this final time before we start 2 Corinthians and deal with the image of who God is. But come with me to John chapter 6 and I'll show you a section here that's quite startling. John chapter 6. We touched on it as we went through, but we want to spend a little bit more time on it tonight. John chapter 6, come all the way down to verse 44. This is Jesus speaking and listen to what he says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. You cannot come to Jesus, you can't become a Christian, you, you can't give your life to Jesus and find salvation unless the Father who sent Jesus draws you to Jesus. Now what do you make of that verse? How do you think about that verse? It's one of those verses that you just, it kind of doesn't kind of comprehend, it doesn't compute, so you move on to the next verse and find something easy to read. But what do you do with that verse? Well, if I'm forced to think about it, Perhaps what it means is that God draws everybody and out of all of that crowd of people being drawn towards God, some of us come to our senses and choose God and become Christians and the others fall away. Is that what it means? God's drawing everybody and some of us choose him out of that crowd and become Christians. No, it's not what it's saying. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent, sent me draws them. You cannot come to, the, to Jesus unless you're drawn by the Father. And I want you to think about this. I think what Jesus is saying here is that it's only those that are drawn that come to Jesus and no one else. The only ones who come to Jesus are those that are drawn. Everyone who is drawn comes, which implies what? There are many people in the world that Jesus God the Father doesn't draw. The ones that are drawn come, no one else comes, so that therefore means not everyone is drawn. Now that becomes disturbing. I think it's confirmed for you when you come to chapter 6, verse 37. Have a look at verse 37. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I'll never drive away. All of those that the Father gives to me will come to me. The Father has a number of people that he has chosen to give to Jesus. And every single one of those people that God has chosen to give to Jesus will be given to Jesus. They will come because he will draw them irresistibly. They'll be brought to the Father, to brought to the, the Son. 
Now, what this is suggesting is a very disturbing message in the Christian culture and in the world as well, where it sounds like God's in control of who comes. Well, hang on, I thought I was. It sounds like God's in charge of salvation. But that's not the right way to put it, surely. God is waiting on me. I'm the one who's in charge and I make the decisions and I work out what's going to happen to my life. It is my life and he waits on me. No, the Bible is actually suggesting something else. And all of this will make no sense if you have a view of God that's small. But if you expand your view of God, you'll find yourself saying it cannot be any other way. And so tonight what I want to do for us is to expand our view of God. And I believe this has massive consequences all through your life. This is a worthwhile journey. This will change how you stand before God, how you think about God. It will prepare you to be with God. It will help you understand security, confidence and joy that you can have in life. It will help you be humbled appropriately. It will change everything. It's massive. So it's a worthwhile exercise to do. Let me journey through the Bible to show you some of the massive themes about the person of Jesus, about the person of God. They are disturbing if your view of God is small, but it's a huge blessing to do the exercise. Let me take you through it. Now, if we're going to do this, of course, be aware that as we come to what the Bible says about God, because the heart is an idol factory, it'll keep, we keep shaping God in the way we want him to be, some of us will find this actually hard to receive because it doesn't fit the way we want God to be. Just be aware of that challenge. Come all the way back with me to Genesis chapter 1. Let's start right at the beginning. Now Genesis chapter 1, it's part of the Bible where there's all kinds of debates and discussions around um, people kind of argue about what parts are literal, is it literal, is it just a story, what do you make of it, what about the days... Are they 24-hour periods, literally, or are they some larger... All those discussions go on. But I'll tell you this. When you boil it down, what Genesis 1 and 2 is teaching us is very straightforward. And it's teaching us this, that everything that exists, the stuff you see, smell, taste, touch, feel, everything in our universe, visible and invisible, only exists because God caused it to be. There is the simple message. It's a beautiful expression. Have a look there in verse 3. Let there be light, God said, and there was light. Let there be a vault, verse 6, between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. Again and again, you find that little phrase, actually, it was so. It's a nice little thing to put next to God's saying. God speaks. He says... He says, let it be so, let it be so. And the verse tells us half a dozen times, six times through this chapter, and it was so. When God spoke, verse 7, it was so. Verse 9, when God spoke, verse, the end of verse 9, it was so. And then verse 11, it was so, exactly as God said, it was so. Out of nothing, God speaks and creates that which exists. By a mere word. Now that itself is complex. How does God speak a word when God is spirit? He has no body. How does a spirit speak a word? He's got no mouth. He's got no vocal cords. How does he speak? There's no atmosphere for the words to vibrate and be heard in. So speaking itself is a, a rich idea here that I don't know that literally can work. But what I think is being said 
in a language that humans can embrace, is that the God who is spirit, before anything exists, wills, thinks a thought, chooses there to be, speaks, and it is so, by a mere thought, out of nothing. Now, at this point, I originally thought to ask, uh, can you imagine the power necessary for that to occur? But then I realised, no, none of us can imagine the power because it's beyond imagining. We've got nothing to compare it to. How can you compare a being who, who is spirit, who can, with a thought, a word, create matter out of nothing? What, what have we got to compare it to? We can't create anything like that. When we create things, we create them out of other stuff. We, we, we take other stuff and fashion it into something else. We make things. We don't create from nothing, except in some logical sense we can do that. You know, you can create a lap when there was no lap when you sit down, but that's just a logical, foolish kind of way of thinking. But we can't create matter from nothing. The power that's going on here is beyond comprehension. You know, we can't even destroy stuff. Not only can't we create from nothing, we can't take that which is and make it nothing. You know, there's a... Um, uh, underneath Switzerland, there's a massive uh, um, a tunnel, a circular tunnel. It's 26 kilometres in circumference. It's massive, hewn into the rock under the great mountains there, 100 metres down. And uh, it was designed and built by a bunch of scientists from all over the world. There was a huge collaboration of um, uh, countries to produce this massive thing. It's called the Large Hadron Collider. It's got a name. And it's, uh, it's full of um, uh, massive magnets and um, uh, freezing sections and power and what have you. And it's all been designed and built to create the kind of force necessary to break apart one atom. It is perhaps, it's been argued, that it's the biggest, most powerful machine ever produced by humanity. It produces heat of 7 trillion degrees Fahrenheit. Now, I don't know what that is in Celsius, but you don't want the kids to get near it, right? It's very, very hot, right? It'll melt your face off. 7 trillion, 7 trillion million degrees... Well, we just got bigger. It's very, very big. <laughs> and all of that, they, 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 they use it to... Um, to accelerate a particle around this thing, around this thing faster until it then is shot at, an, at a nuclei of the atom to break it apart. Now, all they can do is break it apart. And that is the most powerful engine we've got. The true God just thinks a thought and every atom that has ever existed comes into being. We are talking about someone completely outside of who we are in our experiences. Our challenge is that we live in this created space, which is vast and substantial. But never for a moment imagine that this created space is somehow a rival for the God who brought it to be. Colossians chapter 1. All things were created in him, things in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones, rulers, powers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything. And 
all things being made by him and for him. He is before all things. He is above all things. In him all things hold together. Our mind's conception can't capture who God is in himself. He is so totally other than us. He is the creator. We are the creature, the creation. He is pure spirit, pure actuality. He is not getting better or getting worse like we can get better and get worse. He is God, perfect in all that he is, forever. He is who he is. Come with me to see this actually referenced for us in Exodus chapter 3. Just a, a book to your right. Exodus chapter 3, flip it over. The context here is God is uh, choosing to save his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt and he appoints Moses to be the go-to guy that makes it all happen under God and by his strength. But Moses is afraid and asks God uh, certain questions to kind of get him going. In verse 13 of chapter 3, this is the burning bush incident, if some of you remember that. Moses says to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask, What is his name? Then what should I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. Now that is the most... Um, you don't make that stuff up. There is a name that captures the essence of God. I am who I am. I am the totally self-existent one. I am in myself who I am. I need no one else. I'm dependent on no one else. I'm self-existent, self-sufficient. I'm the source of all other existence. But I'm not dependent on anyone else for existence because I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I need no one. I'm dependent on no one. You know, all of us need someone. That we exist is because someone else gave us existence. Everything depends on something else for its existence. Nothing just pops into being. Except God is the one being who is the ground of all other being. The one behind all existence. All of us gain our existence from somewhere, something else. We depend on another to be who we are. God is totally self-dependent. I am who I am. He is the great uncaused cause of all that exists. He doesn't look to another or anything else to define him and his place and who he is. He's the one, Acts chapter 17, who gives life, breath and everything else to humans, to our existence. The universe is not part of him. God creates the universe, but he doesn't, he doesn't um, stick in it. It's not like... It's not like pantheism, which is an idle view of Eastern mysticism that has God. You, you, the tree is God. The rocks are God. Everything is God. No, no. The Bible says God is, is, not, is not his creation. It's not that he is better because creation exists. And it's not that he'll be worse if it didn't exist. He doesn't need anything to make him who he is, to be better than he is. In fact, just by the by, you do not meet God in the sunset. You don't meet God by hugging a tree. 
I know not many of you tempted to pursue that path, right? But you don't meet God in the surf. Well, you could perhaps meet God in the surf if you stayed down long enough, but that's a different story, right? But you don't meet God in the wave. You don't meet him in those kinds of experiences. Creation isn't God. He is apart from creation. He is the self-existing one. Satan, by the way. Satan is a mere creature within creation. He is not a rival power to the great I am. Now rush further forward with these thoughts to the way in which this God therefore rules over his creation, is sovereign over everything in his creation, the great I am and the power that he exercises. There is nothing that happens in his creation except that it happens by his will. Let me read some verses for us. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 39. See now that I myself am he. There is no God besides me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. Now did you get the shock in that verse? Hang on. God is the God who puts to death? I thought he was the God of only good things. We have formed uh, an impression of God in our minds, a new God that's not the true God, a smaller God that's very popular in Christian circles these days. In fact, it's been given a name by people for what it's worth. It's been called therapeutic deism. There we are, you can file that away. Um, Deism is a way of defining who God is. It's a way of talking about God. It's just a title. Uh, a, A deistic view of God is the sense that God is not only separate from creation, but he's actually established creation to run on its own. Imagine, this might give you a little illustration of that point, that um, imagine uh, someone who makes a a clock, um, fashions all the parts, or this is not an eye watch, right? Have I got that right? What do you call them? It's not an electronic watch, right? It's a, it's a mechanical thing that God creates with all the levers and the springs and the cogs and he winds it up. This is the deistic way of thinking about God. He winds it up so that it now runs on its own and sticks it on the desk, on the table, and it runs along on its own. Now that's a way of thinking about God that's called deism. It's not what the Bible's presenting. Its view is that for God, therefore, to step into his world, he has to break the laws of nature. He has to stop the spring doing what it's doing because there's, a, there's its own force and power that's running the universe, independent of God. This is not the Bible's view. The Bible says that God is infinitely bigger than that. He not only creates the universe, but he upholds it at all times. He, he, he is the one who makes it all work, always. It doesn't run off on its own. He sustains it at every moment. There's a part of the Bible, Hebrews chapter 1, that says he upholds the universe by his word of power. He upholds the universe by, its word of, by his word of power. Acts chapter 17, in him we live, move and have our being. Your life, my life is in God's hands at every moment because he gives us every breath that we have. The fact that you're sitting there and your heart is beating is only because God says, beat, beat, beat. God sustains your life at every moment. That is strictly called a theistic view of God. 
the biblical view of God as opposed to a deistic view of God. God is the one who creates and sustains and upholds. He is over and all things that are happening in our world. He is that big. He is that vast and great. He is the giver of life at every moment. Your breath, your loss of breath, is the movement of God. If you cease to breathe, it's because God decided to stop keeping you breathing. This is no absent God. Now, it's such a shocking truth. Because I thought he was the God of the rainbow. All the beautiful fluffy kittens. And Satan's the one who does all bad stuff. Listen to the Bible again. Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who, who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Listen to Psalm 104, verse 27 about the creatures. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to dust. Lamentations 3, verse 37. Who can speak and have it happen if not the Lord who has decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities... And good things come. How can it be otherwise? If God is the great I am, who is the spirit, who has made everything from nothing and upholds everything at every moment and is the towering power over everything that happens, how can it be otherwise that he is sovereign over everything that occurs in his universe? Isaiah chapter 45 verse 5. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. They're such radical words because our view of God is often so small. We're captivated by small ideas of God. Now these passages, in particularly Isaiah, were addressed to a group of people in the midst of disaster, where they had been attacked, where people were being killed, where disaster had come upon them, calamity. And God said these words to do two things, to humble them and to lift them up, to humble them. I am your God, there is no other. Be still and know that I am God. Be humbled before me. But he did it to lift them up as well. There is nothing that can happen to you that's out of my control and out of my hand. Whether prosperity or disaster, I have it all in control, says God, to lift them and encourage them. Now these things, though, are shocking for us, but they're needed. Shocking, but needed. When we see disasters happen, terrible things happen, we often, you'll often hear... Uh, People try and rescue God from the difficult circumstances. Let me give you an illustration of this. Um, so some years ago, you, you might have heard of the World Trade Centre in New York when the terrorist planes flew into it and devastated it. Do you remember this incident? You've heard of this one? I can remember where I was when it happened. It was such a momentous occasion. Three, th over 3,000 people were killed. It was, it was extraordinary. I had friends who were flying back from America at the time. Um, but it wasn't very long after that event. Within a few days... 
that churches in America particularly were making a lot of noise about how this wasn't God. You can't blame God for this. This was Satan or this was evil people. It's not God. God does good things. God is not, God's not in this, they kept saying, trying to defend God so that people wouldn't be angry at God. But what I want you to notice in the Bible is God does not worry about how you think about him. He's not trying to defend himself. I, the Lord, bring death, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6 to 8. I, the Lord, bring death and make alive. He brings down, the Lord brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. Amos chapter 3, verse 6. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Do you understand who we're in the presence of? The great I am. The God who, who is before all things, beyond all things, over all things, who the eternal spirit speaks and all things exist and all things stop to exist when he ceases to care about bringing them into existence. God is the God who is beyond and over and outside. He's not fussed particularly whether we think well of him or not. He is the great God. Now you come into the New Testament and you listen to the words of Jesus. Does he make a difference when you think about these? Come with, come with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. Flip through there to verse 1. I want to show you something um, important to notice. There's, verse 1 gives you the context. There were some present with Jesus who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, what's going on here? Pilate is the governor of the area, and when a bunch of Jews came from Galilee, came into the temple in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to God, Pilate uh, took some of those worshippers and killed them and spread their blood in with their sacrifices. It was a terrible, evil deed that Pilate did. Now, they came to Jesus and effectively, verse 2, the question they're asking him is, how come God let this happen? Did God cause this or let this happen because these people were more evil than other people? These worshippers were, he was angry with them, so he used Pilate to judge them. Was that what was going on? Now, that's the question. Look at Jesus. Do you think that, verse 2, that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, what, notice what Jesus does. They come with the assumption that God has permitted, allowed, willed this terrible thing to occur because God is the sovereign God. They've come with that assumption. But Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, you've got it wrong. God only does nice things. That was Satan. He doesn't correct them. He doesn't correct their assumption. What he does rather is he, he, he runs with their assumption and says, no, 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 no. The reason this happened was not because they're more evil. You are just as evil as them. Be amazed that you haven't been killed as well. And so repent because your time's running short. He does it again there in verse 4. Those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? So again, that God allowed the Tower of Siloam to fall 
Is that because these people were evil and the ones who didn't get killed weren't evil? Jesus says, no, that's not why God did it. You are just as guilty and evil as them. And that it hasn't happened to you is an extraordinary surprise. And it should be the kind of surprise that causes you to go, I need to get right with God. Because if that happened to them, it could happen to me any time. I need to be right with this God. That's what Jesus says. God is bigger than we've ever imagined. Who is he? He is the absolute sovereign ruler over all that he has made. He is the absolute sovereign over the human will. In a way that doesn't stop humans having their own will. It's a mystery. But it doesn't make humans puppets under the hand of a puppet master. Humans have their own will and yet God is so powerful that he controls humans who have their own will, who make real choices. Now what is this doing as you're listening to all of this? Are you finding yourself going, oh no, no, that's not the way I want to think about God. That's not how I like to think about God. I like the God of the rainbows, not the God of the storm. I don't want God like that. I don't want him to be like that. But there's verse after verse that keeps hammering at our small view of God, that keeps hammering at it. Listen to Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases. With the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Because he is the potter and we are the clay. He is God, the great I am, who is spirit, uncreated, all-knowing, all-powerful, eternal. We are his creation, small, powerless, limited, utterly dependent on him for every breath, every moment. Good and bad are in his hands. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, he is the one who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. What are your reactions? How are you reacting? Really important to, to think into my heart, what's this doing for me? You know, uh, one of the things I think it importantly does for us is that it humbles us. And I find myself going through a similar reaction that I've gone through as I've watched, uh, you know, the YouTubes of showing you in space um, the, the solar system in comparison to the galaxy. You know, have you seen those YouTubes of the planets and so on? I'm going to do one for you. I've just found a $2 coin. Didn't think they existed anymore, but there you are. That's about 13 millimetres, right? So that's the kind of size of a marble. Um, now, if you... If you shrink the earth down to that scale, that big, uh, the moon would be about 30 centimetres away. It would be a speck. It took the biggest rocket we have ever made in human history to get people there three days later. It's a long way away. But the sun, if you zoom the sun down to the same scale, the sun ends up about a metre a big beach ball, and it ends up about 120 metres away, which I put it at about where the COVID clinic is. 
That is a long way away, if that's the moon, you see. But then the solar system, the furthest planet in the solar system, is almost Duffy's Oval. You get in your car, you drive all the way along Terrigal Drive to Duffy's Oval. That's the end of our solar system. Remember, here's the moon. What chance have we ever got of getting there, you see? But you know what? That's just our solar system. In the galaxy, the furthest star away from us, the closest star to us, the closest star is Alpha Centauri, yes? Do you know how far away on that scale? Well, you move from the Earth, you drive to Perth and then fly to London and then fly across the Atlantic to North America and you might just get there. On this scale, if the solar system ends at about four kilometres away, the closest star to us is 25,000 kilometres away. That's just our galaxy. It's immense. And the biggest star that we can see in the universe at this point, in comparison to the Earth, our sun, is twice as big as this building. The, the, The scale of our universe is extraordinary. And you know what? The God of the universe holds it all within his hand, the whole thing. He is the one who has named every star and put them in place. He is a God beyond comparing. Now, perhaps this is not how you've thought of God. Perhaps these things are new to you. Maybe you've only just come to the things of Christ and you're beginning to read the Bible and it's all fresh and new. What a great journey ahead. Put these things in place. Lock them in. But if you've been a Christian for some time and not thought through these things... Really important to give attention to the Bible and let it actually change the way you think about him and who he is. Be glad for the shock that he might be giving you tonight. This is your God. And it might raise massive questions for you. How can you say that God is the God who brings death and brings calamity and brings life? How can you say God brings all of these things, that he works everything in conform? Doesn't that make him responsible for evil? No. There's a great mystery in the power, sovereignty of God that means he's not the author of sin. How do we make sense of all of that? Don't settle for easy answers. Don't think of God as the God of the rainbow and Satan as the power of the storm. God is the storm and the rainbow. Let the Bible put its foundational pieces in place because we need God to be like this. We need God who is far bigger than we've ever imagined for a number of reasons. Let me take you through them to finish. We need God to be this big for our humility. For our humility. No one will stand before God on the last day. No one's going to stand. When the curtains are pulled back, we will fall on our faces before this God, shocked that we ever thought there was some kind of competition that we could win. We'll be humbled before this. We are not equals. We're not near equals. There's no power to rival this God. There's no way you can get hold of this God. He is beyond us. Princes, presidents, prime ministers, lords, rulers, powers, authorities, kings, queens will be as nothing before this God. Petty, petty powers in a world before the God of the universe. 
I am God and there is no other. Be humbled. We need this for our understanding of sin, judgment and hell. We need this view of God for our understanding of sin, judgment and hell. We find it very difficult. We find it very difficult to think of how sin could be worthy of eternal condemnation. Gee, it doesn't seem that big a deal. Why would someone go to hell forever because of? Do you know the problem there? Our view of God is too small. The more you see God in his infinite majesty and glory, the one who upholds everything by his word of power, the more you see him in his greatness and glory, the more you'll appreciate that to offend against him is a sin of infinite significance. It is no small thing. It's not just to ignore a friend. It's not just to rebel against a parent. It's not just to disobey the authorities. It's to offend against the divine, eternal, great I am, the majestic, holy one of the universe. It's a sin worthy of eternal judgment. The more you see the magnitude of who God is, the more you'll appreciate sin for what it is and the righteousness of God's judgments upon sin and the more you'll be broken before him. The more you'll realise that life is not just about pursuing my interest in games. Not when there's judgement to come. Not when there's a God that one day we'll all stand before to meet. No one can stand before him without a saviour. And so it will help us also appreciate the wonder of Jesus. The greater you appreciate who God is, the greater your sense of who Jesus is. Think with me about this. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God become man. Jesus is the eternal spirit, all-knowing, all-powerful, unconstrained. The one who makes everything, becoming one of the creatures that he made. Humbling himself, emptying himself to be found in human likeness. It's an astonishing thing that the Bible teaches us. But more than that, Philippians chapter 2, that God becomes one amongst us, humbles himself, humbles himself to death. God unites with human flesh to die, to die for us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the eternal son, one with the father. He gave the eternal son to die for us, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. <laughs> it is beyond comprehension what our God has done for us. The God who could have just left us, who could have just wiped us out, but has given us a hope and a future beyond what we have ever deserved. What love is this? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. When you understand the holiness, the greatness, the glory of God, those words take on renewed meaning. The astonishing thing that has occurred. Friends, you need this God. You need this saviour. You have no hope without him. Which therefore means when you understand the scale and greatness of God, what becomes so desperately important is that people hear the news of Jesus and find salvation in him. That we give ourselves to that task above any other task. 
That love finally shows itself in actually showing people the truth of who Jesus is and what God has done. How we desperately need reconciliation with him. Because of the great love of God, there is reconciliation to be found. His love is greater than you could ever imagine. I'll tell you how else it helps us. It gives you confidence and security in life. Because finally, if you are in the hands of this God... If he has set his affection upon you like he set it upon his son, you are safe from everything. There is nothing that can harm you eternally. The big question is, am I in his hands? Has he set his affection upon me? Has he drawn me to the son? Has he given me to the son that I might be safe? How would you know? How would you know if you're in the son and safe therefore? Well... The only people who repent and put their faith in Jesus are the ones the Father has drawn. So if you have recognised your sin for what it is and fled back to God in Jesus and looked to Jesus as your only hope, if you've done any of that, it's evidence that God has chosen you, that he's set his affection upon you, that he's drawn you to himself, that he's given you to the Son. And if that's all happening in your life, if you've got repentance and faith evidenced in your life, then you're safe in the hand of God himself, the great God of the universe. What do you need to worry about? What could ever undo you? What power could take you from him? What do you need to worry about anymore? Your prayers to this God could make mountains move because of who God is. Let's pray. Give thanks for all of this. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have revealed yourself in all the truth and glory as the great eternal God of the universe. We thank you that you are the one who is sovereign over all, that is the great power, unrivaled. And we thank you with amazement that you you sent your son to become one with us, that you, the God of the universe, took on flesh, humbled yourself, and went to the cross. We thank you for such love. And we thank you, therefore, that those of us who have turned back to you can know that you have set your affection on us and we're safe and secure in your arms. We thank you for these great truths. Help them change our lives, we pray. Amen.